welcome to the Social Rec Stories podcast. My name's Liz Murphy and still under the rug with me is... Mim Fox. Hello everyone. Hello Mim. Hey, welcome back to part two of the Forensic Social Work interview. I know. Um, part one was such a great start to the discussion uh, rem- uh, just, and also reminiscing with you just about what that day was like when we actually went out there to Lidcombe to the new forensic hospital there and got to so- see the amazing viewing rooms. It was phenomenal. And I've been reflecting on uh, that interview a little more since we last spoke and one of the things I really appreciated by of what Peter and Cole taught us was um, the, the way in which they were very reflective about their practice. And I liked how they linked the, the various theories that informed how they worked. But there was a real sense of, um, yeah, that every family... They, they felt very touched by that there was a there was a sense of privilege there that they felt that I I was really moved by Mim were you, did do you remember that when they were yeah I really do and I um I was impressed that they become so connected to each family you you would imagine in a job like that where this is your day in and day out that maybe the families might start to blend together or you know you might start to feel that things become a bit predictable but they didn't give a sense of that at all they're very unique and individualized in their response to people and actually that's a good place for us to kick off this episode Liz because um, we're at the point in the discussion where we're talking about the different sorts of families and different sorts of presentations that occur and you have just um, asked them a question or about to ask them a question about what happens when it's a child or a baby that dies so just a little trigger warning for anyone listening if you haven't listened to the first half of this discussion please go back and listen to our last episode because that will make a lot more sense because the beginning of this discussion now does jump straight into the answer to your question Liz which is about children and babies and when they die and the presentations to the forensic hospital. And one of the things that um, if you choose to continue to listen, I feel like it's a proverbial, I I guess, sharing of recipes because Peter in particular talks about some of the ways in which she has um, created linking objects for families so that they can actually leave their their deceased child behind with them and that was something that she created in her own practice and reflected on and thought of ways that she could help the families leave and I I thought this is the stuff I love about social workers sharing little tips that are going to be so useful for the hospital social worker who's working with the family who are having difficulty leaving their child behind um, so there are some really nice practical um, uh, um, tips that you can take away from this as well, I reckon. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's a really great episode for that. So enjoy everyone and we'll see you on the other side. You know, there's things that we will we do um, that, you know, that you do do with babies that, I mean, you mightn't do with an adult, you know, and... Um, an example of that for me is that um, I um, went through a period when I started in this work and had um, a couple of families in who their, their 
baby had died and and I noticed um, for myself what seemed to be really hard stages in a hugely hard situation but it was the families when it was time to go having to walk out without their baby and I just there's nothing you can do to fix that but how can you soften it how can you give them something that might just get them down the end of that corridor and then that's when I came up with a, um, a dub we talked about this before uh, double wrapping their baby double dressing them um, and then at the end of the viewing I would take the top layer off and the top um, blanket off wrap it in a ball and give it to the parents and you know these parents are, are cuddling this blanket on the way down the corridor and it just gave them something to to make that distance you know and I've had um, a father um, 18 months later say I'm still sleeping with that blanket thank you you know we just didn't know how we could walk out without our daughter and um, so it's just the little things like that um, that we try to do that will make a difference. One of the other things um, you mentioned earlier, Peter and Cole, was that um, you might often talk about that 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 the baby will be cared for. That yeah. And um, I, I think you were saying that you hold the baby. Mm -hmm. It's really a difficult interaction when there's. A baby in the building and it's felt by everyone in the building it's yeah. not just the social work team mm. everyone is saddened when we have a baby in the building or even a, a young child it, it it impacts the whole team and definitely when we're facilitating a viewing it's often such an unnatural act to hand a baby over mm. to someone you've just met for that first time mm. and we you know, we let the parents know that we would be, we're caring for that baby and we are, we are looking out for that baby. And it's not, it is the social workers, but it's actually everyone within the team that we work with takes great care to look after the baby. And that's the terms that we use when we're speaking to the parents that I'm going to look after your baby now that your baby's in our care and I'll keep you updated around, you know, what's happening and if you need information or support or anything, please give me a call. But Mim, I think you, let's go back to your question around caring for people of different ages. I think what also impacts our work is, you know, if we look at everyone from that theory of attachment, it doesn't matter what age anyone is, it's really the attachment that they had to that deceased person and I think it's it's connecting with them and their attachment because we know that the intensity of your attachment actually kind of is commensurate to the intensity of your grief reaction. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't really matter what age that person is. Mm -hmm. It's the attachment that they had to them. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And Cole, what would be some of the things that would give you... I guess information around what that the nature of that attachment's like. What are you listening for, looking at, asking about? No, oh, it's observational mm. and it's listening and it's that empathic engagement and it's being present and it's hearing their story, mm. really. 
I often, when um, before I would do a viewing with a baby, um, or you know, even when I'm with the parents and you might be holding their baby and then hand her over, or I, I often will think to myself that this is their beautiful baby that I am essentially. Uh, um, they've never met me before and I'm holding their baby it is such a privilege and then you know it's I'm actually in awe of their strength um, so we're not to, it it's hard to explain but it's work that when I go into it I completely go into it as myself um, but I get so much in return mm. you know I give myself over in this work um, but I get a lot back and it's an absolute privileged role. Because that would probably help people understand it because I would imagine there'd be some people listening going, wow, how do they do that work? But what you're now describing is that there is a nourishment that comes from the nature of the work by giving yourself into it as much as you can. Yeah. You can see the impact that that can have and you receive from that process as well. Peter. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I, I truly believe um, in the value of that of this work that we do because, it, you know, someone needs to be in that space with that family and it's a sacred space and I feel very honoured to be there um, and that's, I think, what fuels the passion to, to keep doing it keep finding better ways to do things, you know. And um, I mean, Cole, as our team leader, is always talking about different ways that we can even take it better, do better, um, because that, well, that's how we all want to work. It's how we all want to operate because when you're standing there with that family, um, it's like no other, um, no other thing I'll ever do, no other space I'll ever be in. And, and, you know, it is a tough, it is a tough space, you know, it's, um, it can be really rough, but at the same time, it's just so important. Someone needs to be there to do that for these families. So there's a real balance about the work that we do when we're working with these families. It's to tolerate that intense distress without being personally overwhelmed or disengaged. There's that there's that ground that common ground and it is as peter was saying peter refers to it as sacred work it's really intimate work mm. and we're spending that hour with that family mm. and they've never met us before on most occasions yet often they're hugging us they're kissing us they're embracing us mm. when they're you know when they're leaving just because of that intensity of that emotional time that we've spent together and and that fills fills your cup up a little bit as well just knowing that um they're leaving they could be singing laughing joking mm, mm. um having a you know a funny crack at their loved one who's who's died you know it's a totally different um a lot of the time it can be totally different when they're walking out mm. to when they walk in mm. and um yeah or it could also mean that they've started to accept the reality of the loss mm. and they've now begun that process to try and make sense of what their future might be like without their, that person in their life anymore. 
Um, once the once you've had this time with the family, what happens then with regards to your role in that family's life? Well, it depends on what point we've met them. We provide an after-hours service, so we're on call for a week at a time. So it could be that we might meet them. It's often on a Sunday morning. Someone has died on a Saturday night and the police have brought them in to do a visual identification on that Sunday morning and we've met with them on that Sunday morning when, you know, that visual identification has occurred. So with those cases, we would um, talk to them about the coronial process. We'd talk to them and let them know that, you know, there'll be a CT scan that would be done if they had a medical history. We'll, the clinical nurse consultant will be contacting their GP to see if there was a possibility that a medical cause of death certificate could be obtained to provide a, you know, a cause of death for the coroner so that the body could be released without an examination. But if it's an unnatural death, then it's a different process. We need to understand what happened and that usually does involve a post-mortem examination. So it's explaining that to the family, what's involved in that examination. And there's different examination types. There might be an external and toxicology, which is the least invasive examination. And that would be where the doctor would look at the outside of the body and take a sample of blood, use their medical history and the CT scan to identify the cause of death. Then there's the coronial postmortem examination. And that's the doctor would look at the outside of the body, take a sample of blood, but would then look on the inside of the body. They would look in the, the, the chest, the abdomen, and the head. And if they found a cause of death in the chest, then the doctor would be able to stop that examination and not proceed any further, which is in keeping with the act to perform the least invasive examination. But if they don't find anything in the chest, then they'd need to go to the abdomen and then they would need to look into the head to see if they could find any acute cause of death. And then the next most invasive examination is called a forensic autopsy. And that would occur where there has been um, a suspicious circumstances around the death and the, there's often criminal charges pending. So that is a more invasive examination. So it's the external examination, the internal examination, and then a very thorough examination looking at the outside of the body and potentially inside of the body if there's um, evidence that might be bruising or, or other injuries that might have been sustained. So it's part of our role as the forensic social workers here to explain that, explain that in detail and then answer any questions. So as you can imagine, some of those conversations can be really tough um, for families to get through, just knowing that um, their loved one's going to undergo a coronial postmortem. You know, it's um, so, yeah, we talk about that. And, and a lot of the time we do talk in, in quite a lot of detail because it's amazing how much families want to know, you know. So, um, you know, generally what we know, we then they know. Um, and then, you know, they do come up with lots of questions, you know, some families or some families just will draw a blank. And and it's like, it's OK if you haven't got any questions. I'll, you just you're constantly reassuring people you're not going anywhere. You've got the contact number. If you think of something, you can call me, you know. So at what point does your interaction with these families actually end? Does it end after the viewing? Does it end a week later, a month later? Like how, 
how long do you continue contact with families for? Generally, until the final post-mortem report has been written. That depends. So in the acute phase, what we call the acute phase, that would be when, some, when the body was in the building and we would have a lot of contact with families around that period of time. Often daily, they will receive an update from us. And then when the body has been released from our care into the care of a funeral director, then we often have families ringing at different times, you know, and it's depending. Often we get a sense of the families that um, like higher levels of engagement around the process than others. Some families, we don't hear from them at all. Some families will ring us every, you know, every three weeks, want to know if there's an update. Can you tell me anything? Or they just want to reconnect with you. They're missing their relative, you know. I was the last person in a lot of cases that spent time with them. I was the person that was there with them when we had that hour together. You're the linking object sometimes. Absolutely. Mm. Mm. It can be really validating for them just to be able to ring up and talk about that viewing and talk about how much they miss their relative and find out if there's anything that I, you know, do you have any updates? Is there anything more you can share with me? Or it can just be, you know, I just wanted to let you know this is how I'm going. Yeah. So um, on the day of the examination, um, the forensic pathologist will send us, all, all the mortuary technicians will send us through what we call an interim cause of death report. So um, we are relaying the cause of death to the family and then explaining it. In that conversation too, we're also explaining the ins and outs of the examination. So like Cole was saying, not all examinations will go to a full, full um, coronial postmortem. It They may have found the cause of death in the thoracic region. So it may be a cardiac event and there was no need to proceed. So there's, there's a lot of information that you're giving these families. And especially on this day, I find on the day of examination, the, the anticipation around receiving that phone call because they just want to know what happened. They want the words and they also want the words so they can t say the words because everybody's ringing them saying, how'd they die? What happened? You know, so all these things are just so important for families to be able to get through each day. You know, and so important that you then relay it in a timely way. It's not like yeah. one of those phone calls you can go, I'll just do it tomorrow. Yeah, no, it's definitely been a big day, not. I'll just do it yeah. tomorrow. No, families no. are sitting there, they're waiting right. for that call. I, I will sometimes, I've found myself saying to families, as soon as I get the report, I'll ring you and we'll go through it together. You know, so they know that you know how important it is. You know how important it is that they get that phone call. So then you'll go through that and then um, after that you'll say to, you'll explain to them that um, their loved one's able to be released out of our care. We'll continue to care for your son until your funeral director takes over care. I just think using those words of mm -hmm. continuing care, funeral director's going to take over yeah. care, you know, it lets them know that, that you care and that you're going to keep track of things for them. And then once, you know, your role finishes for that time, the funeral director will take over and they'll guide you. But I'll, I'll say to my families, if you need me, I'm not going anywhere. I'll be here. You've got my number. It's okay to call. If, even if it's something 
you don't know whose role that is or how do I get get this done just ring me and you know by the end of that week they feel like they can you know if they don't know who to ask that's my experience anyway but I always just say I'll be here which is so important in this day and age of faceless telephone Mm. information services Mm. to actually know that if I have a question I can contact Peter or Cole. Mm. So when do you, like, do you find that sometimes you have to maybe give a referral for ongoing, um, say, counselling or therapy for the family? Yeah, definitely. And we would speak to families about that. We run a program called the Support After Suicide Program where we would ask someone when we're making that interim cause of death call, would you like us to refer you to our support after suicide program? And what happens there is we would send them an information pack, which they would, we send that out within four weeks of the death. And then around six to eight weeks after the death, we make contact with them either by phone or by, um, you know, a letter just to check in with them, ask them if they, you know, did they receive the pack? And it involves, we've got a couple of newsletters that we send out with that as well. Um, and do they think they want to be part of the program? Do they want to continue receiving the newsletters? There's also a group that we've been running online for the last um, nine months since March, and that's been really good because we've been able to include families from Newcastle and Wollongong to the to the meeting. So it's been really good. We run that once a month on the first Tuesday of every month. Um, with the exception of January. And that newsletter that we write out goes out every second month and it kind of mirrors what we talk about in the psychosocial aspect of grief and loss in that, um, in the group meetings, what we're doing online. And so we did a review of the newsletter and we found that some people, you know, six people, up to six people can read that newsletter that we send out. and. One fellow said to us that he, he just keeps it folded in his back pocket because it, it gives him strength. And there are strategies in that newsletter about, you know, how to cope. And, you know, we've done the Christmas newsletter and looking after yourself and just being clear about what it is that you think you could manage at Christmas time and being kind to yourself and those self-care strategies, giving people permission to do what, what they feel is, you know, what they can manage for themselves at this time and honouring their grief. And can and I would imagine also connecting people who have. Yes, yes, and that is so much part of the program is it's some people, I can remember a client saying it's the only time I get to say my son's name out loud is when I'm part of this group and I'm around other people who have had the same experience. Wow. Yeah, there's real honouring in that, isn't there? Absolutely. Yeah. I was just thinking about that you just saying that that person helped kept the newsletter in their back pocket and I was thinking we're in such a digital age now mm. where we're replacing everything all the time with emails and online newsletters and and just that's such a tangible gift you've given that person by even printing it out and having it physically available right yeah like that and that's part of the honoring as well I think yes mm. and we also send an anniversary card for the first five years okay and we get feedback that, you know, thank you for sending the card. You know, no one else remembered. No one else mentioned that I'd lost my son. But you did. Yeah. And they're, 
it's the loneliness in grief, mm. isn't it, that actually this is combating mm. that, um, that that isolation that comes with grief, I think. Yes. And similarly to what we were saying earlier about the, you know, that some people to actually view a deceased person is quite out of their realm of, of understanding culturally, but also the language of how do you actually engage with someone who's lost a family member say through suicide or through homicide, many people in the community don't have that language and so they yes. shut off because they don't want to make it worse for the mm-hmm. person but the interpretation of that is people don't care or I feel isolated yeah. in this. Um, but to actually have a group of people that can go, I know exactly what you're talking about because I feel that too and I don't feel like I can say my son died today two years ago. Um, because it's not received in the way that I need it to be, but it can be here. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Such important work. Families will often talk about, um, you know, friends that may have not come near them or, you know, feeling as though after the funeral was over, um, everyone went back to their normal life and, you know, and nothing's normal for them anymore, you know. So I will get a phone call um, from a mother or a father that might just say, I just, where did everyone go, you know? But and but they obviously they've saved that mobile number into their phone and they've rung, you know? So they're the little things that makes you realise, no, that's important, you know, saying to people that we're, we're going to still be here, you know? I think... Um, it, it also too on that on that day where we delivered um, and relayed the cause of death to families um, in most cases um, their loved one can be released out of our care but there are um, other cases where they can't and we have to explain that the doctor may have made a further request okay so there's so many complexities even for us to learn and understand um, with these examinations let alone for families um, to receive the information and then have to make decisions so it could be in regards to like an organ retention you know which then is a whole nother um, you know thing for us to have to explain um, and families to try and understand which then prolongs and draws them out longer again it's it's a tough it's a tough road for them and something that it's it's not even like they could say actually we prefer you not to do that mm-hmm. because the, it's part of that mm-hmm. legal process that you were talking about that that bit they don't actually have the choice in that one mm-hmm. um, but you have to explain it in a way that makes it mm, I guess understandable there is some. There's still the avenue for the family to object to that organ retention request yeah. and that would be um, reviewed by the coroner. The coroner certainly does want to know what family's views are. Oh, that's good to know. So people can actually say, look, I, for, I don't know, religious reasons. Yes. Or, oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And that's about the examination process as well. We didn't mention that, but certainly that's one of the questions that police would ask when they're completing their initial um, paperwork for the coroner, they will ask, do you object to a post-mortem examination? Mm. And then there is a different pathway for cases where they object. But you can imagine how torn families are 
through its wanting to desperately know what's happened to their their child, their baby, versus um, an organ retention, retaining what you know an organ that possibly may be able to determine the cause of death. But can you imagine as a parent, you know, you know, trying to weigh that up, you know, desperately seeking answers, yet at the same time the thought of what that means for their their son or their daughter it's um and it's i guess um being in that space with them and giving them what they need answering their questions um but oh it's it's very very difficult for them and there's a team in the coroner's office that manage that process um the organ retention requests and the um, objections so we would we would do the preliminary explaining around that and then when the pathologist had made that additional request for the organ to be retained, that then is referred to the coronial information and support team. And then they would manage that and liaise with the coroner around that and the pathologist and then go back to the family. And do they have social workers or they do okay so in that team so you're actually doing a handover to the social workers in that team to continue to support the families at that point but peter often will you know peter builds rapport well he she offers the families the opportunity you know would you like this to be handed over to the coronial information support would you like to be handed over to another team to manage this part of the process or would you prefer to Keep communicating with me. Okay, so sometimes you actually sometimes there is that flexibility. I I do that. I give my fam. I try and give my families that that choice, um, because sometimes the the having to face or meet another person can be extremely overwhelming, and um, the we call them by short CIS, but it's the Coronial Information Support um, Program. That their team. Have put so much time into myself um, being down in a regional um, catchment um, that it it it's great to be able to give families that choice, you know. And often they'll say, "Oh, Peter, can you just you just tell us, you know?" Yeah. <laughs> um, so, but no, and we I mean we work we all work very closely together to support each other in our different roles, don't we? Yeah. 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 Can we spend a little bit of time just getting a sense of how you sustain yourself in this work? So I think you talked about just the nature of the work itself can be very nourishing and privileged work. But let's be honest, this is intense stuff. And um, I would imagine we'd have people listening going, how do they do it? How do they do it? So how do you, you mentioned earlier, Cole, that, you know, you have to monitor workloads and things like that. So yep. I mean, do you do you do you get the option of saying, I, I you know what, I I can't do do it today, or I yep. can't work with this family because they remind me of my own, or or things like that. Do you get to have those conversations with each other? Yeah, we do. We're we're really well supported. Um, so if there is a, a case that you have, um, you know, something resonates with you, um, we we all have each other's back. You know, it's a colleague will step in and and help you out um, we're provided with really good support we get good clinical supervision and we also um, have good group supervision so um, that so work supports us in that way 
And then I guess personally, we all do different things, you know. Um, I like to, me personally, I like to get outdoors. Um, sometimes it'll be just sitting on the beach, um, staring into nothing and, and I feel rejuvenated. So for me, it's getting outside, um, it, you know, exercising. I know that sounds a little bit, oh, you know, cliche, but it does help. You know, it just somehow... It balances out the head and heart. It right? does, yeah. Yes. You somehow just feel lighter. And um, I don't know, I always just come back to it. another massive gift of being able to do this role is the gift of perspective it gives you. Yeah, yeah. So for me, I, I feel like I've got a constant um, check on my perspective of life. And that in itself is a huge gift. You know, maybe before this work, I would have thought, oh, that's a big deal. Goodness me. <laughs> you know, now it's like I feel very I feel very calm. I feel very calm and like I'm, you know, can take it, take it on. It can always be a lot worse, you know. Mm. So but what about you, Cole? What would you do for? Well, we have funded external group supervision. Mm. We have um, internal. Sorry, we have the funded external group supervision supervisor that comes in we have the funded individual supervision Great. we have clinical one-on-one -on -one supervision we have access to a fitness passport mm -hmm. which nearly everyone in the team accesses mm -hmm. to everyone has some sort of fitness outlet mm -hmm. we have an informal an informal process where we check in with each other around every viewing or ID. So if someone's been downstairs and they come up, you know, mm -hmm. we're, and the design of the office space is open so that we've got our own space, but the doors are open and we can hear each other. So you can just come straight upstairs and talk about exactly what happened in that viewing or identification. And we give and receive support mm -hmm. from each other in the team. We've also practiced um, allowing, you know, vulnerability. Thank you. Yes. You We're absolutely have hmm. to allow yourself to be vulnerable in this work. And you, you know, we are not experts and we need each other. And there's a lot of work that goes into cultivating a respectful, supportive mm. team environment where we can work that way. And, you know, it's even hearing people on the telephone. We make our calls and, you know, you can hear when someone's having a difficult call and just checking in, oh, how did that go? That sounded, you know, that sounded hard, but I really liked that, you know, you were consistent and you were calm and you continued just to repeat this message to that family member because they were having trouble hearing what it was that you were saying to them. It took a long time, but you got there in the end. So yes, there's, there's those moments, but there's also, as Peter said, you know, there is the reframing about the everyday, you know. It's acknowledging that it's, it's that whole hierarchy of need, you know. You have a family, you have a house, you have food, you know, and the privilege of doing meaningful work. Mm. And this work is really meaningful. So it does, it's a really dynamic work environment mm. as well. Mm. And, you know, we do model our values. We have social work values, we all have personal values, but we also have the right values. 
and respect integrity teamwork and excellence and we actually we actually live them it's you know it's a such a different place to work yeah it is i i um just i couldn't believe how lucky i felt when i came into this work just to be able to actually do something that you believe in that you actually truly wholeheartedly believe that there's value in it mm. it was just it was a, such a gift um you know the other thing i find too personally that um is a great support for me within the work is within my multidisciplinary team so i will get comfort or um, reassurance or knowledge um, from like could be the mortuary technician that that chat you have on the floor or it could be um, your forensic pathologist that you know you bump into after you've just done a case and they've said you know oh, I felt like that through this you know and in in our team we do it all the time so you're not just talking with social workers or within our social work team it's a big team and I think because everyone's doing it really essentially for the one reason the connection is um it, it's quite amazing sometimes you know and you do it's like a bit of a work family that's how and I that, feel and and so you're supported in it right so you're yeah. not isolated no, no um and these people get you because this isn't the kind of stuff you can go to a dinner party and go no well, what a day. Let me tell you about my day. Now, most people would be yeah. at the other end of the table. But with these people, they get it, right? Yeah, they do. So they've not only got they your do. back, but they understand the complexities yeah. and the depth um, of the work that you do. Yeah, and we, and we have um, great moments together where we laugh. Yeah. You know, we eat, we eat food together. We share lunch. We drink coffee. Um, it's it's an environment that I think for most people in the community would think would be quite grey and gloomy. It's actually full of colour and friendship, and um, it is. It's been it's been an absolute, uh, I guess, like I said, a gift to be able to work in this area. Well, so you two have systematically now. I can I don't know about you, Mim, but I'm seeing I'm seeing the messages already coming through about I want to be. I want to be like Peter and Cole. Absolutely. Um, what do I need to do to be one of those? And so it would be remiss of us if we didn't actually ask, you know, if people are really interested in working as forensic social workers, what do they do? What advice do you have for them? Well, I think Peter nailed it in her, you know, summary. Just Peter's words were, go for it. Mm -hmm. But really formally, it's having experience working in ED, ICU, HDU, it's that hospital, frontline, social work experience. Yeah. But, you know, we've also got people in our team that came from Justice Health or there's someone else that um, worked, um, has a mental health background and they're all really valuable, mm -hmm. everyone, you know, and it's, yeah, there's no real formula. No, but um, I mean, also too, when you're doing your studies, um, check in with yourself. You can feel um, you can feel when passion starts mm. to flick off, mm. and when you do, just pursue it a little bit and see. That's how, because there's so many areas you can work in in social work. For me, I always knew it was critical care and forensics. Always had an interest in it, and I was lucky enough to have worked um, in both. And 
it's you know so you've just you've got to listen to yourself and mm. check in and work out what's for you and if it is don't be scared because it's forensics don't think that ooh you know because it, it's 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 really rewarding it's um you know you'll meet great people you'll be well supported you can always train and you're constantly learning like mm. every week i would learn something new and to me that's another thing that feel fills me up because i'm stimulated you know so i'm stimulated in the work um but i just think it is go for it give it a go you know, I'm sure you'll give um, something of value to these families. Mm. Um, and I would imagine you'd have to be okay with a dead body. Absolutely. Well, yeah, it might help. <laughs> that might help. <laughs> yeah. So if you if you aren't, it's yeah. probably not the, the line <laughs> yeah. of work yeah, for yeah, you. Yeah. That's what I was thinking. Look, can I just thank you both so incredibly much for the time that you've spent and also for your real honesty and representing the amazing work that you do here we really appreciate it and we know our listeners will as well no worries thank you for thank you having so us. much thank you both very yeah, much it was great yeah so welcome back how was that? That was amazing. And I feel like forensic medicine are probably going to get all these emails from social workers <laughs> and social work students saying, I want to work in that team. And wouldn't you want to, right? Like, I just think to do that sort of work with that team in that so beautifully relationally driven way, I just think what a what a dream come true. And I, I mean, I, I hope they didn't mind me kind of I guess sharing the point that social workers had such an impact on the forensic service that they were very humble in talking about, look, it's a team. We have the, the, the pathologists, the pathology technicians um, who do amazing work. And yes, they do. But I just feel like social workers had such a strong influence in the way in which that service has been shaped. And thankfully, really, for all those families that are exposed to, you know, or or who have the tragedy that they have to actually be, um, be become clients of that service. You know, it's interesting, Liz, because I I do some work with a hospital that I know you know well as well, and um, in the aged care department there, the aged care social workers are always talking about what they would do with the space if they were given the license to redesign it. And I think this is a really good example of where social work and design come together, right? Uh, because to be able to design a space that really speaks to the emotional needs of the families who use the space, what a gift, mm. what a complete gift. Um, yeah. Well, on that note, I wanna say um, thank you to Peter and to Cole and um, and to for them to take the time to really spend with us. I mean, that was just beautiful. And uh, and to the listeners, I hope everyone is taking care out there. It's um, 2021 is a better year, but still a hard going one. So everyone, please take care. There's a lot of social work students out there still studying remotely. So um, lots of lots of support being sent out your way right now. Um, if you haven't already checked out the website 
and seen the uh, model of care and the blog piece that Peter and Cole have put together for us to share with you all. Get on there and do it. It is the absolute complement to these episodes. And, um, and they've, you know, provided that out of the goodness of their heart for everyone to use as resources if they need. So get on there and have a look. And if you've enjoyed these episodes, uh, please let us know. Send us a message, www.socialworkstories.com. Get in touch with us through Instagram, through Twitter. We would love to hear from you. And we hope this addressed all your forensic social work needs, Liz, after all those people who requested forensic social work. We did it. We've done it. We've done it. And we couldn't have done it without the marvellous Justin Stish because I think it would have been like rounding up kittens (laughs) trying to edit that conversation where we were just like frisky, weren't we? Just wanting to find out more and more um, and falling over ourselves to to ask questions of of Colin Peter. So, Justin, a big thank you for all your efforts. Um, Hopefully it wasn't too challenging for you. And completely. And, um, and I, I guess as well, if anyone has any requests for any area of practice that they'd like us to try and um, accommodate and find a social worker out there willing to give us a story, we're more than happy. And we could on. ramp it up to a group now, I think. Justin's kind of cut his teeth on a conversation with four. Damn it, let's go for 10. Let's get 10 social workers under a blanket talking. Oh, Look, I think that's the 2021 aim, right? So if you're a social worker out there wanting to share a story under a blanket, wear your podcast. We are always earnestly looking for more ideas. Get on www.socialworkstories.com and tell us about whether or not you want to join us under the blanket. Take care, everyone. Have a great month. See you soon.